You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. This episode of Monster Talk contains adult themes and is not suitable for children. The views expressed on Monster Talk are not necessarily the views of Skeptic Magazine and are the Skeptic Society. This is Carmen, mother of four children, wife to one husband, and victim of her first paranormal sexual attack. It physically engulfed me. And every night since, I've been under some sort of attack. The next night, I was sodomized. Uh, the following night, I was raped. My husband's been sodomized. My husband's been taken into a deep trance and showed horrible things. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. Today's episode is about a haunting in Connecticut. The episode is co-hosted by Dr. Karen Stolzno with special guest Monster Talker, paranormal investigator Matthew Baxter. We'll be interviewing author Ray Garden, the man whose book led to the documentary and film concerning the Snedeker family and their alleged paranormal terrors. He has another story he'd like to tell you, and it's not supernatural, but it's still quite horrific. Monster dog. So, a haunting in Connecticut. Um, so, this is uh, kind of a famous story now. I don't know how famous it was in 2005 when I first saw the uh, documentary on Discovery Channel. And a true story. But it does, well, based on a true story. <laughs> That's right? good. Inspired so. by actual facts. Yeah. For example, there really is, um, and this is true and documented, a state called Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I believe that's one of the facts that I saw. So that was cool. Um, yeah, so it, this is a story about a family that moves into a house in Connecticut. Uh, one of the children in the household is having um, cancer treatment or some kind of medical treatment. And it was cancer. Hodgkinson's, I think. Well, that's, yeah. Hodgkinson's lymphoma was one of the things I saw written in one place. One of the stories. It was one of the things that may have been based on a true story. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and while they were in this house that they moved to, apparently to get a better access to the medical facilities they were being treated at, um, they began to experience um, interesting paranormal events. Ultimately... Um, discovering that that their house was uh, uh, demonically infested and required um, an intervention by uh, demonologists and the priest. By Joe Nichol? Uh, No, no, a different demonologist. uh, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, the famous uh, of the Amityville horror fame, I guess would be the way to put that. Uh, um, Yes. Yeah, and... And the place was uh, haunted because it had formerly been a funeral home. Yeah, that is one of the theories. Yeah, yeah. Although I've been in many funeral homes that didn't have demons in it. 
Um, so I'm not sure if that necessarily follows, right? You're a skeptic. I am a skeptic. Uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe I'm having negative vibrations, but seriously, I mean, out of all the funeral homes I've been to, I mean, is there something special about, um, former funeral homes that would summon demons? I I mean, only if the bodies were mistreated. Uh Aha. Oh, and there were cases of necrophilia. Mm hmm. Really? Yes. I don't think that made it into the documentary. <laughs> I don't think it did either. Yeah. Well, the version I saw. <laughs> did you Did you see the film? It, I, I still haven't watched the movie. Um, I, I did. Yes, Brian and I were actually asked to uh, present the film at a sneak preview by the uh, the studio. So um, when they questioned us afterwards about what we thought about it, we told them. Ah, and you haven't gone back? Um, <laughs> well, they don't ask us to do as quite as many sneak previews as they used to. It's funny. Yeah, so, it was it was bad. I guess we should um, introduce Baxter as well. I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, well, we, I actually told the listeners um, that we would be changing our format and having some new features. And so today we're having our very first guest monster talker. Uh, so this never is, been a feature before. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're a feature. Is he a feature or a guest? <laughs> yeah, well, you're you're a feature from a I'm software feature. perspective. I'm a feature and benefit. Yeah. <laughs> so today's special feature is guest <laughs> Matthew Baxter. So well, Matthew yeah. Matthew is from the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society. Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society. Yes. Oh, that's our research. Yeah. Yes, and Rocky from, Mountain uh, Paranormal you... Research Society. <laughs> yes, yes, and the duo Brian and Baxter. Right, yes. right. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the Baxter side of Brian and Baxter, whom I have seen wearing uh, black suits and green ties on the internet. Yes, otherwise we've all seen. But um, I think we should uh, just let him tell us a little bit about why we've involved him in this particular episode. Well, um, I actually have a little bit of a history with uh, the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, did a little work with them back in the uh, mid-90s. But uh, I had actually read this this book in question, In a Dark Place. And it's actually what uh, spurred me to call Ed Warren in the first place. Um, and uh, Ed, Ed and I got along fairly well. But uh, Lorraine Warren did not like me at all. For some reason, she loves Brian, and she hates me. And uh, it's got to be uh, her amazing psychic abilities, I guess. Mm-hmm. She's right. That's <laughs> yeah, the only thing I can think of. But, uh, yeah, Ed, Ed was interesting. Ed could have heart attacks on command, and uh, that was always very interesting. What were those for? Uh, to get out of things? Well, well, to show, yeah, a little bit a little bit like Samford and Son. That's what uh, I was thinking. It was, uh, yeah, a red fox. Yeah, red fox. Yeah, it was a little like that. Uh, he, uh, anytime he needed to show how dramatic a haunting was, he would have a heart attack. Nice. And uh, it was very interesting. And finally it took him. Oh, did it really? Oh. Yeah, that's why he finally died of a heart attack. Um, and I think he had only had like 70 before that, so... <laughs> Uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, now, I don't want to come across as disrespectful. Uh, Ed and Lorraine have done a lot of hard work in the field of demonology. And I am using a lot of quotey fingers when I say all this. Um, but uh, the, the, they're kind of the, the the grandparents, I guess you would say, of all of the really terrible paranormal research out there. So they've done nothing legitimate? I've never seen anything they've done legitimate personally from working with them uh they 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 really put on two faces uh when from what i saw they would they would have their face that they would show the victim uh or the client as it were which is very concerned and and very wise and very you know helpful and all those kind of things and then to other people they would roll their eyes and express that the people were crazy and uh it was it, it was Really surprising that they haven't been called out more uh, than than they are. Ooh, we're going to call them out today. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe. I hope so. We'll see. I, uh, Ray, um, uh, the, 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 let me say, explain why Ray got um, invited to the show. Uh, I was doing research on a haunting in Connecticut because I, I thought the documentary was rather interesting, uh, and. 
while doing research, I found this internet post in which a man claiming to be the author of the book said that what took place in real life did not match the events in the book, but that um, when he had tried to explain to people what was going on, uh, he had been told, hey, just make it up. Um, and he was being told this by the Warrens. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. I wonder if this guy really is who he says he is. Because um, you can say you're anybody on the Internet. It's really tricky to sort of prove that you are who you say you are. So uh, ultimately, though, uh, I tracked him down and asked him if that really was from him. And he said yes, and that he'd be happy to come on to Monster Talk and talk about the Warrens and the experience he had. So hopefully uh, that's the uh, interview we'll have here shortly. You know, one of the interesting things, Blake... Um, when I asked Ed Warren about this book, he told me that every word was absolutely the way it happened. Wow. Could I just read a quick quote from Wikipedia? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. From, uh, apparently, <laughs> from Ray himself, stating that the family involved, which was going through some serious problems like alcoholism and drug addiction, could not keep their story straight, and I became very frustrated. It's hard writing a non-fiction book when all the people involved are telling you different stories. Yeah, that is suspicious. But again, you know, demons can confuse people. Yep. <laughs> so maybe that's a... No, that's probably not it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused. All right, let's see if Ray can uh, join us now. Monster Talk. Today we're talking with author Ray Garten, who, according to Wikipedia, has written over 60 books. And one of the books that he wrote is In a Dark Place, The True Story of a Haunting, which later became the documentary A Haunting in Connecticut. And I believe the film is called The Haunting in Connecticut? Yes. Okay. Before we get to the haunting itself, how did you get involved with the case to begin with? Uh, my agent at the time uh, approached me with the possibility of, of doing this project. I'm not sure how she uh, got connected with the Warrens. Uh, she told me that they needed a writer and they wanted a horror writer. And I was familiar with the Warrens because I'd read uh, about them when I was a kid. I used to read the National Enquirer. That's the kind of kid I was. And um, I read their exploits in, in, in that tabloid. And I thought it would be fun to, to work with them on something. So I said yes. And I had the job. So who was involved in the retelling of this story to you? Uh, I went to Connecticut, and I met with Ed and Lorraine Warren and Alan Carmen Snedeker, the, the couple who had lived in the former uh, funeral parlor, the house that used to be a funeral parlor. And I, ha I recorded our conversations. I had uh, quite a few tapes, and I couldn't get the, the, the Snedekers, their stories, their deta the details of their stories weren't meshing. They weren't adding up. And so I went to Ed Warren and I explained to him that this, this was happening. You know, and I, I, I said, I'm not sure how to go about this. I had never done any nonfiction before. So this was a new experience for me and I was trying to, I wanted to have all the information laid out in chronological order in front of me and it just wasn't adding up. So I told Ed, and, and he said, um, well, they're crazy. He said, all the people who come to us are crazy. That's, oh. why, that's why they come to us. Um, he, he said, you just use what you can and make the rest up. He said, that's why we hired you. You're, you're a horror writer. You write scary books. We want this to be a good story, and we want it to be scary. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> so um, that's what I did. I was a little... I, I was pretty annoyed that it was being published as nonfiction because I'd been told to, you know, just make up what I what I didn't have or what I couldn't make work. What were the events as they were described to you? They moved into this house that they did not know had been a funeral home. And they had a son who had cancer. And it was never explained to me what kind of cancer. And I never met the son, although I talked to him once on the phone briefly, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. The, the son was the one who first noticed that there were, um, there were strange things going on in the house. He kept seeing things, hearing things. And if you've seen the documentary, uh, or, or I'm not, I haven't seen the movie, just not been interested in this at all. I had nothing to do with either the documentary or the movie, and neither did my book. Um, they have denounced the book, uh, which included, well, Carmen, for one thing, said that there was too much sex in it. And 
all the, the the there are incidents of anal rape where where Carmen claimed that she was anally raped, and her husband too, um, Al, said that, that they were both anally raped by these demons. And I included that in the story. I got it from them, <laughs> and that's what she points to as 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 the thing that she doesn't like about the book. Is is that a discrepancy she wasn't able to rectify? <laughs> oh no. Oh. <laughs> Part but you know, there's there's a whole lot of that going on in in many of the Warrens' books. There's there seems to be demons are into butt sex apparently. <laughs> aliens um, too. Aliens too. The, aliens book. too. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of butt sex going on in these in these uh, these strange stories that nobody can prove. And we um, shouldn't overanalyze it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I stop. I gotta stop. I will. It's gonna be a long night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ray, what aspects of the story were true uh, in the sort of overarching elements? Was the house a former funeral home? The house was a former funeral home. I have since learned that they knew it was a former funeral home when they rented it. Um, the company that, adver- that, that was, had the house up for rent uh, advertised it as a formal, former funeral home. Um, I was contacted by the woman who worked for the man who owned the property, and he had nothing but trouble with, with the Snedekers, apparently. She contacted me once, and I tried to get her to respond because I wanted to talk to her some more, but she wanted nothing to do with this, which is actually very wise because the people who are living in the house now have have undergone a great deal of, of harassment and people coming to their house and taking souvenirs and... Um, uh, the the uh, let's see I think it was Lionsgate the the company that made the movie they put yes. their street address on the, on the the movie's website um, they they eventually took it down but for for a while the street address was there so people were just showing up out of out of nowhere driving the family crazy um, <clears throat> the the stuff that was true you know I really I really don't know now because I uh, like I said I never met the son. They were very unclear on the kind of cancer that he had. There, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of strange details to their story about his cancer. And when I talked to him on the phone, I, I never met him, but Carmen put me on the phone with him once briefly, and she listened in. And um, he he told me that as soon as he started taking pills, he stopped seeing and hearing things. And she abruptly ended the conversation right there. And I later found out that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm. That the girls in the house, I think they were Carmen's nieces, who claimed to be have been fondled by invisible hands, were actually molested by him. And when that happened, he was taken out of the house. Uh, he was institutionalized. He was diagnosed with and treated for schizophrenia. And there are two stories here. There's the stuff that the Snedekers told me, and then there's the stuff that seemed to really happen. And they they don't add up. It was mostly it was it was small details like um, uh, dates, times, when when this happened, when that happened. They didn't they they just didn't coalesce. There there was a lot of conflicting information there, and that's why I went to Ed Warren. I started telling everybody who would listen. I started denouncing the book and just saying, look, I was told to make it up. I've been saying that for 20 years, but my story hasn't changed in 20 years, and and the story this story has changed so much that Carmen is now writing a new book with uh, John Zaffis, who now claims to be to have been the head investigator on this. And when I, when I met with uh, Ed Lorraine Warren, they introduced John to me as their nephew who was interested in getting in the business. They said he's not an investigator, he's not involved in this case, he's just observing. Now he's the head investigator of this whole thing and he's writing a new book with Carmen about the the, the the demon house with the butt sex and the funeral home thing, and uh, her story has changed so much that they, they've got to they've got to they've got to tell it again. Now, is that going to actually be the title of the book? The the demon funeral home yeah, and the butt, the butt sex. sex <laughs> no, I don't remember what her her new title is. I, I know that John Zaffis uh, learned very well from uh, uh, his oh, aunt yeah. and uncle about how yes, to lie. He did. <laughs> um, now, who was involved in? 
getting the historical research, was that just kind of given to you from uh, the family and the Warrens, or did you it actually do any historical I didn't research? Have, I wasn't given time to do any historical research. I took okay. the job, signed the contract, went to Connecticut. Um, I was there for a couple of days for a lot of intensive interviewing, and I was given this story, this information, and told by Ed, you know, what doesn't work, just make it up, and that was it. And I talked to other writers who've worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that's what they do. And they always go after horror writers because they want somebody who can tell a story and make it scary, just like Ed told me. Just, you know, we want you to make the story scary. So you go in expecting to be writing nonfiction, and then you find yeah. that as you're making it up, did you find it to be ethically challenging? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I was really bothered by it. I consider this the low point of my career. And I wrote the novelization to the movie Good Burger. So if this is the <laughs> point of my career. <laughs> um, yeah, I was bothered by that. And I made my feelings known to my publisher. And I didn't like the fact that it was being published as nonfiction. And they just kept telling me, we have no problem with the story that we've been told. And they got very chilly. And they, you know, they just didn't, uh, didn't want to hear me complain about it. And I suppose that if I'd had the money, which I didn't, I could have gotten lawyers and tried to get out of the contract, but I'd already signed the contract, and there was no way I was getting out of it without uh, a, a legal problem, which I just couldn't have afforded. So I went ahead and did it. I held my nose, and that's why, as soon as the book was published, I started bitching, and I've been mm -hmm. bitching ever since. And has this had any negative effects on your career at all? Has there been any kind of backlash against you? No, there, there hasn't. Um, the only people who don't like me are the, the devoted followers of the Warrens who think that I'm making it lies about them. This, the story that I started telling when the book was published has, has slowly spread, especially since the, the advent of the Internet, that, that helped it. So now when people talk, discuss this story, they always bring up the things that I've said, which is exactly what I wanted. I always wanted... Uh, when this story came up, I wanted to, them to say, but of course, the guy who wrote the first book, Ray Garten, says, and that's what's happening. Um, it has the book. It's the the book in a dark place is actually in demand. It's been out of print for quite a while, and it will stay out of print because I don't want it to come back in print, and Carmen certainly doesn't. Um, but last year, it was it was number two on the list of the most requested out-of-print books in the country. Wow. Uh, second only to Madonna's book, Sex, Do which you also includes butt sex, I think. Hmm. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel that, uh, you know, even though the book's out of print, that it's still coming back to haunt you? Um, I don't think of it as haunting me because I've made my, my feelings known and I told my side of the story and... So what really happened is out there. So I'm, I'm not bothered. There are plenty of people who know about it. Um, I like the response the book has gotten from readers, even people who don't believe the book is true without hearing my, my side of it. They, I've, I've gotten some great responses from people who say it's one of the scariest books they've ever read. And that's, what I, that, that's how I got through it. That's how I managed to you know, keep my head from exploding. I, I became determined to just approach it as a novel, another horror novel, and make it as uh, entertaining and as scary as I could. And that works, but it's still a lie. With the words nonfiction on the book, it's still a lie. Now, did it uh, help you to hear that uh, Jay Anson was having some similar issues when they asked him to write the Amityville Horror, and that they, the, the, they were actually encouraging the Lutzes to have that book written to help with their money issues? Yes, Yes. Do you think that you get the feeling that that's kind of their M.O.? That is their M.O. I've, like I said, I've talked to other writers who've worked with them, and it's the same story every time. This is what they do. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or, say, Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's a very big difference between the Warrens that I knew of before I met them and the Warrens I met. When there are no cameras around, when they aren't in front of an audience, they're very different people. Ed, um, if you disagree with him about something, he will punch you in the face, or would, because, of course, he's gone to that great haunted house scam in the sky. But um, <laughs> he was a, a, an angry, violent, unstable man. Um, when they when when In a Dark Place came out, they went on the Sally Jesse Raphael show to promote it. This is my favorite part of this whole story. <laughs> Sally Jesse Raphael did an episode of her uh, sort of sleazy daytime talk show about this book, and the show was called "I Was Raped by a Ghost." <laughs> and at one point in the show, they brought out a bed onto the stage and told Alan Carmen to get on the bed and explain to them. How the Demons Raped Them. <laughs> oh, tacky. It was, uh, it was a, a low, low point in television, which is like a, a series of low points. Um, so the anal rape part was actually told to you by them? Oh, yes. So yes. What, what elements did you actually make up from thin air? Um, I made up a lot of the supernatural activity, a lot of the, the scary stuff I made up. Um, I was uncomfortable writing the anal rape stuff because it was just stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I, if I, if I were writing, uh, one of my novels, the way that, uh, that Carmen told me this happened is not the way I would write it because it was just idiotic. Like one time she said she was doing the dishes in the kitchen and the demon started anally raping her and she ran out of the house and down the driveway. And as she was running, they continued to anally rape her. And is I tried it to get her to explain, yeah, how does that work? And she said, "Well, it feels like there's a needle being stuck in my rectum." Interesting. So, uh, maybe she had hemorrhoids. That's what, exactly what I was that's thinking. Exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I now personally, despite having been in the navy, I never was anally raped. And, <laughs> and, but, but I bet it didn't feel like having a pin. In, in, in no, 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 no. I mean, it yeah, sounded but, to me like they didn't—they didn't need the Warrens. They needed some preparation H. Yeah, no, um, yeah, there, there, there is a cream you can get for that. So yeah, and maybe a donut. Well, I mean, do you one of the rubber donuts? Yeah, do you think the? Um, I mean, schizophrenia—that's a real serious, you know, problem. And so mm -hmm. is cancer, if that really happened. Um, I think it's a little weird they didn't specify what what sort of flavor of cancer they had because most people I know who have cancer. So that's they part know of their what story. kind of cancer they have. Right, right. Yeah, it's part of their story. But and that, they, most of the people I've known who have cancer, they make a point of learning everything they can about that particular kind of cancer. If they have it or if someone in their family has it, their immediate family. And here was a son who had um, some sort of mysterious cancer. It was a blood cancer, she said. And I was never, it was never explained to me what specific... I think, in, in fact, it's been so long since I've gone over the book that I honestly can't remember, but I think I might have researched some kind of blood cancer just to fill in the details that were left out. 
Yeah, I was uh, going to say Hodgkin's lymphoma comes up as a as a, as a common uh, yeah. element, but but yeah, I gathered that that's not what you were told. If if it was mental illness, if if he legitimately had schizophrenia, is it possible that um, they were trying to you know deal with that problem? in a non-rational way, you know, this, this, rather than admit their child has, you know, mental illness. Yeah, that that is a possibility, but there was a neighbor living upstairs from them in this house. Um, Hmm. and she said that Carmen used to come talk to her about bad dreams that she was having and weird experience, bad bad dreams. That was it. It was, she said it was bad dreams. You can see some of this on YouTube. Um, there's a current affair, uh, covered it back in the eighties. And they talked to this neighbor. Um, she said that Carmen was uh, heard about the, the Warrens. And as soon as she heard about the Warrens and found out what they did, her story started changing. And she, she kept telling this woman, I think I need to call them. I need to get them in here. And the woman thought she was nuts. The neighbor never, never really uh, believed anything she said. She certainly had no strange experiences in the house. She lived in the same, ha- same building, same house. And there's a... a clip from a current affair on um, YouTube where Ed Warren uh, is, they talk to the neighbor who's very angry. She said by then she was fed up with the whole thing, people coming out to the house and she's sick to death of their story. Ed Warren um, starts talking, starts refuting what the neighbor said and the, the uh, reporter, he um, questions the uh, things that Ed's saying and Ed gets pissed, which is what Ed did. Um, when I brought up the Sally Jesse Raphael show, I was about to say that they had Joe Nickel on that episode. And oh, nice! Uh, yeah, <laughs> Nickel has said that that Ed had to be physically restrained after the show. To wow! To keep him from attacking him. Um, and all you had to do to get that reaction was suggest that their story wasn't true, or that it was um, they were. Um, misleading people or, and, you know, just question it in any way, and Ed would just go through the roof. Um, I was just going to speculate uh, that if their son had schizophrenia, it's a possibility that the parents might have suffered from that too. It's a possibility, but my theory is that this was all a well-thought-out plan. When I met Carmen, she was engaged in an illegal interstate lottery scam, and I sort of accidentally found out about it while I was there, and she kept telling me, don't tell anyone, don't, you can't mention this in the book. And their landlord, while they were living in that house, said that they didn't start having demonic problems until they'd gone for three months without paying their rent. And suddenly they got a lawyer to say, well, these people are having, you know, supernatural problems in your house. So they have a history of walking out on a lot of bills. Um, I, I get the sense of grifters off of this, you know. And now Carmen, Carmen's new shtick is that she is a psychic, and she's always been a psychic uh-huh. since she was a little girl. So now we have to wonder, she moves into a house that's full of demons. Her son is the first to see the demons, and she doesn't believe him, and she tells him to stop. You know, they, they put him down in the basement. To, that's his, where his bedroom is. She doesn't believe that his stories about the things he's seeing. So if she's a psychic and she's sensitive to this sort of thing, which she claims to be, why didn't she at least give a second thought to what her son was saying, and why didn't she sense it herself when she was in the house? Bad parenting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that clip from A Current Affair, when she's asked, why haven't you moved, you know, she gives this litany of horrors that they've experienced in this house, and they're still in there, and she's asked, why haven't you moved? Why haven't you left? Well, because children need stability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think uh, Joe Nichol did uh, research this story as well and said that he'd spoken with the landlady and she reported that there hadn't been any incidents before this family moved in and yes. no claims afterwards either. Yes, that's, uh, that's true. There had there been none. The neighborhood uh, was not fond of, of the Snedekers once all of this attention started taking place. Nobody in the neighborhood ever believed it. Um, one of the neighbors who lived across the street started keeping records of everything that happened. She wrote everything down. Wow. Um, I'd never talked to her, but I bet she would be an interesting lady to talk to because she's, she's, she, you know, she smelled a rat from the beginning and she started keeping track of everything that happened. And so nobody there believed them. The, the house had never had any problems before. 
it's never had any problems since. The Warrens come in, they say that there's there was some sort of necrophilia going on um, with, when it was a funeral home. Well, that upset a lot of people because apparently when it was a funeral home, the family who owned the, the funeral home had owned it for many, many years. They were respected members of the community. They had great reputations. And the Warrens come along and say, well, they were having sex with dead people. Mm. And it gets right. a book and a movie and a TV show, and everybody believes them. That's right. very, very classy. Very classy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. And that didn't even occur to me while I was, um, you know, when I was involved with that. But it, so it sounds like uh, demonic possessions can really be hard on you. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering um, when you took the case and it turned out that things didn't add up. Had you had you really hoped that it was going to be a, a legitimate supernatural case? Uh, has has this experience I, made you? Yeah. You know, what I expected, and back then I was still, I was going through the, I had a very uh, strict, bizarre, kind of frightening religious upbringing, and I spent the first 20 years of my life just pretty much terrified of everything, and by the time I, I was involved with that book, I was uh, in the process of sort of cleaning out my mind <laughs> of all the uh, the crap that had been dumped into it for the first I don't know, 20 years of my life. And um, I, did, I did not know what I believed or didn't believe yet, but what I expected when I took the job was a family who honestly believed that they had had supernatural experiences. It didn't matter to me whether I believed it. I expected them to be sincere about it. They weren't. Um, they, it... it, it Pretty, it pretty quickly became clear that the whole thing was sort of scotch taped together, and um, and I became more and more convinced of that as I learned more details over the years. And uh, it was a it was a scam. I think the the Snedekers did this specifically to make money off of a book and movie deal, and that's what the Warrens talk about whenever they go into one of these cases. When I was with the Snedeker's, Carmen frequently asked me, how much do you think we'll make off the movie deal? I mean, that was a question she asked. I read the book, and I think it was in 95. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a little hard to remember um, all of the details. I, uh, I noticed that on the movie, they, this is one of the things uh, that I always try to be careful of or, or I try to keep an eye out for, is when bad TV and bad movies influence ghost hunters or the, the paranormal investigator type, yeah. the people that want to pretend to be the Warrens. And one of the things that they pushed in the movie was that this cancer patient, because he was so close to death, was able to um, commune with these spirits <laughs> easier. And that was a really concerning thing because I've already seen a few cases where these these paranormal investigators think they need to bring a cancer patient with them to get better results. Oh my God, you're kidding! Now, now was that at all anywhere in in the in the book? I don't recall anything like that. Is that something that I, was just that in the movie? No, that doesn't. I don't think that was in the book at all. That was uh, something that they added to the movie, and I guess the movie paid a lot more attention to the necrophilia angle, which was I think just suggested in the book as a possibility. Um, I think they spent more time on that. The movie was uh, even even Carmen has said that the movie you know sort of took its own path, which is what movies do. Boy, howdy! <laughs> it really um, did. But you know they they always say based on a true story. Mm-hmm. These days, whenever I hear based on a true story, I get very very skeptical because uh, <laughs> from my own personal experience and other true stories that have turned out to be BS, I, I just don't buy it. We're with you there. But I, uh, I no, I don't remember that being in the book, and that's pretty horrendous. That is Definitely. awful. Definitely. But you know, it's it makes sense because all of this stuff. I just um, wrote an article about the uh, satanic panic of the eighties and nineties, <clears throat> which inspired a novel of mine that I that was published in nineteen ninety seven called Shackled, and. A lot of people, when they read that novel, think that it's a, a a work of fiction based on fact, and it's not. It's it's a it's a speculative fiction 
that you know my, the the reason I wrote the book was I asked myself, well, what if all that satanic ritual abuse stuff really was happening? And then I wrote the book. And now I'm a little nervous about that because there are a lot of people who look at that book as fact. It's sort of reconfirming everything they've heard. And I wrote the article because the book has just been reprinted by my new publisher, and I wrote the article to say, no, 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 this is a book of fiction, and the satanic panic was the worst case of religious hysteria and delusion since the Salem witch trials. These things feed each other, because the satanic panic came from, like, crap that was being written by, or said and written by Mike Warnke and, and John Todd back in the 70s, and then there was Michelle Remembers in 1980, which took from their stuff, they took from Rosemary's Baby. Um, I mean, you can see elements of all this stuff building up into the McMartin preschool school case. And that's what happens with this stuff that can't really be proven, and they, they can't tell the difference between um, what they saw in a movie or, or what they read in a book or what they heard over a campfire. When Geraldo did one of his specials on the Satanic Panic, uh, on the sat satanic ritual abuse uh, back in 1987, he started talking about the fact... I mean, th the show begins accepting the premise that there's a worldwide network of Satanists who are kidnapping people, and they have women who are, serve as breeders to give birth to children that they used for sacrifices. When he mentions that, that they, they have these breeders, what he uses to support it is a clip from Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was going to say... Uh, no, go ahead. You know, well, you know, that goes a long, I mean, a long way back. Even like Dennis Wheatley novels yes. uh, um, always had that... Uh, this is not a true story, but it's entirely based on real occult experiences, yes. right? Oh. And, um, and, 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 and Christopher Lee is actually convinced that Dennis Wheatley was a genius, an expert on, on Satanism. Yes, he is. <laughs> That's telling. He was a novelist. He told stories. He made shit up for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah they, they, they. I mean, they, I've got uh, the devil rides out, um, and you know, and it, it is. It it really is written that way. I mean, like it's the most shocking true revelation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so very breathless. And so, speaking about novels and fiction, have these experiences inspired you in any way to possibly someday write the truth, or can't you do that? Well, I haven't written the truth, but I used my experience with the Warrens in a novel called The Loveliest Dead, which was a ghost story. Um, and in it, there are real ghosts, but it is a work of fiction. <laughs> Nowhere on the book is it, does it say nonfiction. But I have a couple who are uh, a couple of uh, Ghostbusters who are based on Ed Lorraine, and um, I uh, paint them exactly the way I found Ed Lorraine to be. I've never thought of writing the, the, the true story that, uh, of, of my experience because, you know, it's been, um, it's been 20 years, and I just don't like the idea of having to go back through that and, and, and to write a nonfiction book about writing a book that was supposed to be nonfiction but was really fiction. It's just, just thinking about it gives me a headache. So has this, uh, this experience, or maybe just the experience of writing... Uh, horror in general, has it made you more, what you might say, formally skeptical, or where do you fall on that sort of spectrum? I'm extremely skeptical. Um, I am... Anything that's associated with religion, if if it were to tell me that the sun was coming up tomorrow, I'd get a second opinion. Uh, because Ed and Lorraine Warren, what they do is very religious. It's very... Um, it's entirely... It comes out of religion. They're Catholic. And they use, of course, religion in everything they do. Um, they claim to be very close with the Catholic Church, but to the best of my knowledge, the only priests who've ever been involved in, in their shenanigans have been defrocked priests or, or former priests of some kind. Um, I don't think there's ever been any official involvement between the Catholic Church and, and the, the Warrens. Not that it would surprise me. I mean... <laughs> I'm not too fond of the Catholic Church myself, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very skeptical. And I and I people expect me when they when they meet me and talk to me about the supernatural, they expect me to be a believer because I write about this stuff. But to me, horror—I've been a horror fan since I was a little tiny kid. And to me, horror, vampires and werewolves and ghosts—those were a relief from the horrors that I lived with, that I was taught 
to believe in when I was a little Seventh-day Adventist growing up. And um, that was my escape. And I never believed it, except for the satanic stuff. I mean, when I was watching Rosemary's Baby back then in those days, that was like watching a documentary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm very skeptical of everything. <laughs> Well, you know, with that, I mean, you you do realize that you're on Monster Talk. So we absolutely have to ask, and this goes for movie monsters or cryptozoological monsters or big winged demons that anally rape Snedekos. (laughs) Um, What would you say is your favorite monster? Wow. That's tough. I think... um it varies according to my mood, but I think the werewolf has always been one of my favorites. Oh, um, your, your stock just went up. <laughs> That's historically been the most favorite answer for our guests, I'd say. Really? Has it? Oh, for sure, yeah. the werewolf has gotten um, a really raw deal in, in fiction and movies. They're, yeah, but we have a better quality of guests. That's why. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. No, you're right. And the vampire gets all the sexy stuff, right? So. Yeah, the vampire has all the cachet because um, he's he's sexy because he he's dead, but he gets to keep his looks. And you know, the the werewolf changes into this hairy monster, but they're pretty much the same thing. I mean, the the vampire has always been erotic. The the werewolf, there's no sexual attachment in, at all. That's what well, I've I've written two um, werewolf novels, Ravenous and Bestial. And when I wrote Ravenous, I was determined to attach lycanthropy to sex, and I made the uh, the werewolf curse a uh, sexually transmitted disease. And the, the, the werewolves, I've always seen the werewolf as our animalistic nature unleashed, the id unleashed, uh, with no uh, no conscience, no restrictions, no no taboos, and no filters, and being an animal, it just goes after what it wants, and it takes it. And being an animal, what it wants is food and sex. That um, makes sense. And it also, I think, uh, a good werewolf makes back hair sexy, so I'm all for that. Makes what sexy? <laughs> back hair. <laughs> <laughs> no reason, I'm just saying. Uh... <laughs> so, so yeah, what... the werewolf is, is uh, probably always been my favorite and i keep hoping for a werewolf uh revival but if the the wolfman movie that came out a couple of years ago couldn't do it because that was a really good movie it was a classy movie it was well done if that couldn't do it then it's probably not going to happen I, I well i keep going back to um that that magical year when we had uh, uh the howling and an american world 1981 yeah so um i i just i, I love both of those movies they're so different Me too um, but uh, just at a time machine. Yeah, just <laughs> good times, good times. Well, I, yeah, I, I have a DVD player, so it's just as good. So <laughs> I love both of those movies. I think uh, for me, The Howling edges out uh, American Werewolf because it has. I like its sense of humor. I like the werewolf effects better in The Howling. Um, it's got more werewolf bang for your buck because uh, there are a lot of werewolves. And it has a sexy werewolf, which doesn't happen very often. Enough. Very sexy werewolf. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and a cute werewolf. It has the cutest werewolf in werewolf history. She's precious. But what, a, what a way to go. So I don't, yeah. no spoilers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I'd say she makes the news with what she does. So, yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, that, yeah, so I, I, I love both. I, I, I Like you, I kind of... Kind of prefer the howling. Also, the special effects were done by the guy that did um, the thing, which is the one thing. of my favorite. Movies. And so, one of the other greatest horror movies. Yeah. Ever made. So, but my wife, whom I love dearly, prefers American Werewolf in London. And when we went, uh, I guess one of our very first, well, really, our first date was watching that movie. So. Oh really? Yeah. So our first paying date was uh, a different thing, but the grounds were real theater. But, but we David met. Naughton. We met over a VHS movie, I guess. Is, uh, <laughs> what is it about that movie she prefers? Uh, uh, yeah, I think it is, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, uh, she's a big Dr. Pepper fan, too. Yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that could be part of it. Um, and it's, it's got a great soundtrack. It's got a good special it effect. Does. It has, has a, a light, oh, has a very lighthearted attitude. Um, 
you know. And yet it manages to be really upsetting a couple of times. There's a dream sequence in there where he, uh, where David Naughton finds himself back at home with his family. Mm-hmm, There's yes. a knock at the door. That's one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen in a horror movie because I didn't, ex- I didn't see it coming, didn't expect it, and um, shoot everybody. That knocked me over. Yeah, it, it, that is a, a good uh, jump scare uh, and completely incongruous with the rest of the story, but it works as a dream sequence. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I could talk monster movies all night long, right? <laughs> <laughs> so could I. So, what, what what are you working on now? What's coming out new from you? Um, well, my newest novel just came out. It's called Meds. It's a thriller about um, pharmaceutical prescription drugs and pharmaceutical companies and the things they do to um, conceal the dangerous side effects from the public, from even the, from the medical establishment. Um, and that came out just a couple of weeks ago. And I've uh, been doing some uh, short stories. I've got a collection coming out in the fall from Cemetery Dance. It's a, it's a limited edition collection, and it's already sold out, but it's called Wailing and Gnashing of Teeth, and it's a collection of my um, short religious horror stories with two new stories that have never been published before. Cool, very cool. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Ray, for talking with us today. Well, thanks for thank having you. me. Monster Talk. Thanks again for listening to Monster Talk. Today you heard an interview with Ray Garten about his work with the Warrens and the story behind the film The Haunting in Connecticut. The episode was hosted by myself, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and guest co-host Matthew Baxter. If you would like to support Monster Talk, please take a moment and give us a review on iTunes or join our Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter. Links to all those tools, plus others, and complete archives of our show are available at monstertalk.org. The views expressed on Monster Talk are not necessarily the views of the Skeptic Magazine and are the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk is made possible with the support of the Skeptic Society and Skeptic Magazine. Theme music for Monster Talk is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. I'm Blake Smith. Thanks again for listening. skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skepti, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Uh, you two will have restricted contact from now on. <laughs> I can't, I cannot compete with Blake, though. Well, hey, I'm, it's not a contest. It's not a contest. But I win! I, yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's not necessarily a good thing.